Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you'll hear a really interesting conversation Mike Dean and I had with Ben Downing, the former state senator who's running for governor in 2022 as a Democrat. For the record, Downing is at this point the only candidate officially in that race from either party. We talk about how Downing's own history of personal loss has shaped the way he looks at the world and the question of whether there is an appetite right now in the Democratic Party to elect a white male as a standard bearer. But for First, Peter Kadzis and I chat with Yawu Miller, the senior editor of the Bay State Banner, about the other Democrats who are weighing a run and how Downing compares to his potential rivals. The most speculation, at least in the political establishment, is revolving around Attorney General Mara Healy, who has an official schedule that often resembles someone who's running for governor. Um, But then on the other hand, she holds statewide office. So that provides very good cover. Her um, position seems to be that she's happy where she is. My own guess, and it's only a guess, is that she, like others, are waiting to see who was named the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. I would think she'd be in the running, as is D.A. Rollins. So we've got Maura Healy as heading the list of maybes. Um, second on the list of maybes is uh, Harvard professor Danielle Allen. Um, she is not a household name, although she's widely known within academia. Um, she, she's a multidisciplinary scholar, so it's hard to describe her with a catchy thumbnail. But I would say she is a philosopher of participatory democracy. I've watched a number of her videos when she's been speaking to academic audiences or at the Cambridge Forum to a more general audience. My word, she is a powerful speaker in the sense that I think like Deval Patrick, she has the ability to instantly connect with the audience before her. She has said she's exploring a race for governor. We don't know yet whether she's running. And then as another double maybe is State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, who has expressed an interest in running. Here we have three maybes, all women, two women of color, all extremely progressive. Yahoo Miller, as you look at the field of potential Democratic candidates, and then fit in Ben Downing, who's the one declared candidate. What's your take on on the field? And I'm especially wondering, are there clear delineations in this field that we might have expected in previous years? Or is everyone kind of on the same page ideologically, if not in terms of personal identity and who they would come to office representing? I think Danielle Allen is kind of the wild card here. I mean, for me, particularly because I don't know what her positions are. She's not held office before. She's not been intimately involved in civic life in Massachusetts, you know, in any way that where she's made the papers other than mulling a run for governor. So she's a wild card. I think Healy, Downing and and Chang Diaz all represent some form of progressivism with uh, Chang Diaz and you know, and perhaps downing on the sort of far more left end of the spectrum and Healy 
a little bit more center left. That's kind of how, how I would define it at this point. When you say you think of Downing and Chang Diaz as a little more to the left than Healy, what specifically are you thinking of? Chang Diaz has long been sort of a darling of the progressive movement in, in Massachusetts at the state level. She's been a champion of, of you know, a lot of the most progressive legislation that's passed through the House or failed to pass through the House and, and Senate. You know, she's she, her bona fides are pretty strong. Downing as well, you know, has taken fairly progressive stands over the years at a time when progressivism was not as fashionable as it is now. Healy, you know, in, in her position has been a little bit more somebody who plays politics that plays you know plays ball with uh with a lot of different factions i mean she's i'm pretty sure she'd identify she'd self-identify as progressive but you know there have been some hiccups along the way one area where she angered some people locally was supporters of rachel rollins felt like it was unfair for her to conduct an investigation into an alleged traffic altercation it raised eyebrows because Healy has not done this with law enforcement people, with other elected officials, you know, for her to, to, you know, conduct an investigation of Rawlings. It would be one thing if it was common, you know, if it happened to other elected officials, if it happened to a single Boston police officer, which it hasn't. But for her to do it with Rawlings kind of raised some eyebrows locally. I'm really glad you mentioned that example because the backlash to that move, perhaps not surprisingly, since I'm a white guy in the suburbs, I, I had missed that. But when you mention it, it seems so self-evident that some people would say, hey, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? I, I also think, uh, by the way, an attorney general in Massachusetts investigating any elected official in public is headline news. I mean, the AG's office appears to be dead from the neck up when it comes in that department. So Yahoo raises an excellent point. From a purely political point of view, that could be seen as something to uh, buttress AG Healy's cred with more centrists. The bottom line is it strikes me as a very curious episode, shall we say, in Massachusetts political life. So at this moment in time, when progressivism, as Yabu says, is the new norm, and so many Democrats are paying attention to the power of representation in the political realm, is the party realistically going to get behind a white male like Ben Downing? That's a good question. I think, Adam, it's a question that's obviously in the back of many people's minds. I think it's a little premature. Downing, to be fair to him, is a real man of substance. Now, I'm not suggesting the other people aren't, but I think it says something about today's climate that a former public servant, he served, I think it was 10 years in the legislature, and he resigned because he term-limited himself. I mean, that's a real, you know, there's a badge of honor there. In the wake of uh, Congresswoman Presley's election, I think it's nevertheless a very practical and valid question. I imagine people are going to want to see what the various candidates' positions are. And, I mean, if, if young people in Massachusetts could rally around Ed Markey as a progressive champion, it could happen with Downing as well. Um it's worth noting that uh, that the percentage of young people voting 
jumped from 6.7% to 20% um, in that race. So, um, you know, there is a, 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 a what what some in the media are, are marking as a surge in progressive political activism. And uh, whichever candidate um, is able to to uh, to capture that uh, could potentially benefit from that. Alan Barry in the New York Times just had an excellent article about the energy that young people, especially people as young as 16, have brought to the political field in Massachusetts. And uh, I don't know, I might suggest that while the votes are certainly the most important thing, the energy that young Democrats would bring to this election uh, could be an important factor. Now on to gubernatorial candidate Ben Downing, who sat down with me and Mike Dean, GBH News's State House reporter. I would love to get you to start just by giving us and our listeners some sense of what the rhythm of life is like when you are running for governor, you know, more than a year before the primary. What do your days and your nights and your weekends consist of. It's interesting, right? First, I'm I'm talking to you guys from my attic where I hadn't spent more than 10 minutes before uh, a year plus ago. And now I spend um, up until recently close to 10 hours a day up here. I'm like a bad New Yorker cartoon. Every box in our house is just on the other side of this screen. We have two little ones, uh, Malcolm and Eamon, who just turned four and one. And so mornings are predictably hectic and zany, getting them out the door to, to daycare. Um, that's wrapped up in some form by nine or so. Um, and then I'm probably doing a couple of check-in meetings with, uh, with staff, uh, following that up with a couple hours of either fundraising or political phone calls, invariably some type of a you know, walk and talk meeting after, whether it's on the phone or going to meet somebody relatively close. Same in the early afternoon, and then the childcare juggle pickup after, and then the evenings are at this point two to four um, Democratic town committees, meet and greets, fundraisers, uh, other community uh, events that I've either been invited to or I want to check out and sort of join with folks. You're talking two to four per day? Yeah, yeah, per evening. So um, this evening is a light evening, just one meet and greet that some friends are hosting with their neighbors from seven to eight. Um, But increasingly on a schedule, those are in-person and socially distanced. And as more community events come back, we're adding those in uh, as well on the weekends. So I'll tell you, like the weekends have actually been the weirdest part because normally you fill that in with all these sort of community events around the other stuff. And that's been, you know, it's it's just a weird gap to start to fill in. so yeah, it, that's sort of the, the rhythm and flow of it. It's very odd to walk up to your attic and say, I am in Worthington at six o'clock, I am in Franklin at seven, I'm in Amherst at eight, and then I'm gonna be recording a podcast from 9.15 to 10. Like that's just a weird series of events to say, I'm gonna do all that, but I'm gonna sit in the same spot. And for someone who is used to the the natural give and take uh, with an audience, uh, with, with folks asking questions, it's just, an odd experience to do all of that through a medium, through a screen. Um, so yeah, it's it's been an interesting first few months that way. I mean, I love it, um, but it is it is entirely unique and unlike anything I've ever done before. We should mention for people who don't know that you're talking to us right now from your attic in East Boston. 
you shut the window because there was some airplane traffic overhead, right? What do your what do your kids who are pretty young know about your gubernatorial bid? How do you talk to them about it? Malcolm, who's four, his exact description of it is dad is running for government, which, you know, I mean, pretty close. I'm impressed enough that way. <laughs> and when, you know, I'll run down to help out with dinner before I run back upstairs um, and he'll say, good luck with government tonight, dad. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, we, we've got a couple of cat in a hat runs for president book and we've got a, a Kamala Harris's book and a few others. And we'll read those and well, dad, that's that's like you, right? Well, kind of, and we'll try to try to impart a little bit of it. Eamon, I'm not really sure what Eamon knows other than he's really frustrated that he can't tell us everything he knows right now, right? He's at that wonderful, like full-on toddler running into everything, wanting to say everything and unable to, to get it all out at once. Yeah, I guess one is a little young to be wrapping your brain around your dad running for governor. Yeah, yeah. he's still trying to wrap his brain. Like, who's this guy? Now I got to bring it down a tone and ask you about, you know, what it's like running for government. Uh, <laughs> I, I do. I want to start with the elephant in the room, uh, and that's the current government, uh, the governor, Charlie Baker. You've seen his poll numbers. You're well aware of the target you're going after. You're well aware that uh, coming out of this pandemic, his, his poll numbers seem to be as high as they ever were. They, they may have dipped uh, during the early vaccination days, but they're, they're right back up there, according to at least some of the last polls. How do you do that? How do you convince someone? Uh, a voter, you know, and I'm, I'm talking months down the road here, someone who, who might be an independent voter, that we need a Democrat back in the corner office instead of uh, what they might consider a satisfactory Republican. First, it's about being clear about why I'm running, right? Uh, both the, the why I have entered the race to build a fairer, stronger Massachusetts and what that means, but also pointing out that that isn't a critique of the last six months. That's not a critique even just of the last six years. Right. Like that's Massachusetts government for the better part of the last you know, two decades, three decades, where we too often have left behind communities that I've called home in, in Pittsfield, you know, where we've started to make our home here in East Boston, uh, you know, communities where state government should have and needed to step in and play uh, a much stronger role to, to make sure that everyone in those communities had the opportunity uh, to make the most of their God given talents and didn't. And we saw it when. When GE left Pittsfield and we were left cleaning up and rebuilding that community, and my generation was told to, to study hard and get out, we see it here in East Boston where my neighbors on the one hand are told that they are essential workers and you know they come home from those essential jobs and have to fight evictions to be able to keep their homes in the middle of a pandemic. And then to the, those specific voters, Mike, first, I'm showing up multiple times, and that's part of getting into this campaign early. It's listening to those voters. Uh, It's making the case to them uh, for the solutions in the policy that we outline. And then it's trying to earn their trust. It's not assuming, hey, I'm the Democrat. I expect that I'll have your support. Far from it. It's going out there and earning the support and making clear uh, that I'm going to be an independent voice for them as well. And we'll do that by building a campaign that isn't taking donations from lobbyists or PACs and outlining a a policy agenda that I know from time to time will disagree with uh, a majority of my former colleagues, but I think is critically important to build that fairer, stronger Massachusetts to address climate and economic fairness and racial justice. On that note, on your former colleagues, what can a Democratic governor do to get the legislature to be more active? You've definitely been a critic of legislative leadership in the past. Uh, you want to use that Democratic supermajority more than uh, than is currently used. 
how does a Democratic governor go and do that? Because we saw Deval Patrick try and fail a few times. You know, there, there were some successes as well. But, um, you know, taking a, another stab at a Democratic administration, how do you get a moderate legislature to go your way? So first, I think you got to be comfortable with calling out that problem, right, Mike? you got to be comfortable with calling out the fact that the problem is not a lack of a Democratic majority. The problem is not a lack of power in the legislature. It is a, a hesitance or a willingness to use that power to address the needs and the problems as we see it uh, in our community. And, and that's economic inequality. That's the steps we need to take on climate change. That's racial justice and all of the different issues that, that touch on those that are impacted by those. And so you use it by first trying to advance the agenda, laying it out there to voters, and then not accepting the status quo for how we do business that leads 70 to 80% of the business the legislature handles in any given year to the final 72 hours. Uh, that's not a, a healthy way to have a debate. It's not how a majority of other states do it. I know full well that there is some natural default to timelines, but a governor can try to advance that timeline, can try to use the, the bully pulpit of the office to, uh, to try to more aggressively move legislation to set earlier timelines and to raise the standards and the expectations for what we are going to get done. Can you name a couple things that you would do day one, month one in office? And when we're talking about an executive role like this, it doesn't have to go through the process as much. You can say, I'm going to reverse this Baker policy. I am going to reimplement this Patrick policy, whatever. I'm going to start the new Downing policy. Do you have anything uh, at top of mind that you would jump right in and change about Massachusetts day one? The area where I've spent the majority of my career, uh, the area where I have the, the greatest expertise, and, and I want to be clear, part of getting in early is spending the time to listen to voters across the state to make sure that that day one is as informed as possible by as many views as possible. But on climate, it's making sure that the Department of Public Utilities, the Department of Energy Resources uh, is um, beginning a wholesale change of electric rates and the way that uh, the utilities operate to make sure that climate is their goal first and foremost. Uh, the best example of this is what has gone on in New York under the reforming the energy vision process, the REV process. A massive undertaking, one we should have started in Massachusetts at least six years ago, one that we would start on day one. I would also appoint a cabinet level uh, position uh, to implement a whole of government mandate around climate. So this would be a cabinet level position to think about how does uh, the Department of Housing and Community Development, the whole, the whole Secretariat of Housing and Economic Development, think about climate? How do our education departments think about climate? All of that. So we're implementing all of that. Um, those are the first that come to mind, along with some of the stuff that we rolled out just last week. A similar effort to try to coordinate across state government uh, by having a single person uh, in charge of all of our anti-poverty programs and knocking down barriers to those so that we can get more out of those while I am asking the legislature to do more in an effort to reduce child poverty, to eliminate it by 2030, to eliminate child hunger by 2030. It's wonky stuff, I know, but important, obviously, to you and everyone who lives in the state. When you talked about what New York is doing and how that could serve as a model, can you go into a little more depth? What New York has done is um, effectively reopen the books on how the utilities rates are made, how they get to the dollar per kilowatt hour rate uh, that we are charged for uh, the energy that we use, that businesses use. Um, and they looked at that and said, how can we send clear messages around the type of energy that we run around clean energy and in specific locations uh, so that um, the, the places and the spaces on the grid 
that are currently served by the old model of eight to 10 big power plants, fossil fuel power plants spread across the state and the region can be served by multiples of renewable projects, solar and energy storage, offshore wind, uh, geothermal, you name it, right? Um, and to do that, you need to send clear signals to the operators of those projects so that they know, all right, there's a specific uh, region that if we locate there, we can help serve a, a community need. A great example, uh, the much discussed East Boston substation. If Eversource had to go out to the private sector and say, here is the energy demand need that we see in the surrounding area, you could have seen private developers come forward and say, here's a solar and storage solution to that that doesn't require the substation there. Or we could have a much smaller substation and that would open up other sites that are less troubling uh, by having a combination of energy efficiency, battery storage, solar projects, and others. There's any number of different options within that, but at its core, it is sending clear signals to the market for how we go out and build a, a clean energy economy that hits 100% clean electricity by 2030, 100% clean energy by 2040. Is it tough to get people to think about and talk about all the things that you want them to think about and talk about when the nature of the gubernatorial field is still so much up in the air? I mean, there's been speculation for years that Maura Healy will run for governor. Danielle Allen's thinking about running for governor. It sounds to me like she's probably going to, but she's still officially exploratory. And then on the other side, we don't know if Charlie Baker is seeking a third term. We don't know if Jeff Deal is going to run for governor. Is that a hurdle when it comes to getting people to engage in the kind of conversations that you're pushing them to engage in? It's certainly a bit of a challenge at the front end. But it's also easier. I know that I want to do this work and that it is critically important. This is not a it's not a fallback plan to me. This is not something that, you know, I need to figure out what are the right poll tested lines for? What's the way to talk about this? I know what I see as the problem. I see a state government that too often has not used the power it has to be able to improve the lives of folks who have been my neighbors, who I've grown up with, quite frankly, who have held me and my family up when we were about uh, to fall apart and went through some of the toughest times in our lives, right? So um, for me, yeah, there's a lot of talk about who's gonna get in. Do we really wanna talk to you if maybe somebody else gets in and that could change the field? I'm in this no matter what. And I think that by showing up and having that conversation multiples of times and listening to people, um, I have found that on the second conversation, on the third conversation, People are excited to talk a little bit more about their hopes and dreams for their communities, their fear uh, for what they see, um, and, and also to listen to someone who might have a different background, might be a little bit different than what they would have expected uh, to support. And I think there's a strong case that, that I can make based on my background, based on the fact that I, I don't think there will be another candidate better positioned in this race to help lead the transition to a clean energy economy, and that is the defining issue uh, of our time. And so uh, I'm excited to to have the opportunity to go out and earn voters' trust and support over the campaign. And that's part of the reason, again, of getting in early. When it comes to social justice issues, uh, Senator, what do you tell people who might say a white man is not the, the candidate that we're looking for in 2021 in the Democratic Party? I'm sure people aren't completely decided on something like that, but it must be a, something of a pushback that you're experiencing when you talk to folks. Um, what do you say when they say, no, my, my top issue really is uh, social justice, racial equity during the pandemic, during police reform, issues like that? Um, what do you say to folks like that? You know, I, I'm not assuming 
that I will have anyone support the day I get into this race. All I'm asking is the opportunity to earn that and uh, to to watch how we try to run this campaign and the type of candidate uh, that I will be, the type of public servant I was when given the opportunity uh, in the past to serve. And that is one who listens before they lead and who puts uh, the, the unique lived experiences of those who have dealt with injustice, unlike anything I will ever deal with in my life, at the front and center of this campaign. And so I say to them, like, look at the, the policy that we will roll out, and you will see at the center of every one of those policies, of our climate change policy, of our economic policy, of our um, housing, transportation, and infrastructure policy, criminal justice reform, you name it, at the center of that, will be equity and will be racial equity because it cannot be a peripheral issue. It has to be an issue at the center of that. And to be clear, don't think that that is something I am just saying now. Go back and talk to folks who I worked with for a decade plus uh, in the trenches in Pittsfield and North Adams and in every one of the 52 communities I represented. That has been a consistent message throughout my career. And then at the end, it's on me to go out and make that case. And you know, if folks choose another candidate, I get that. But all I'm asking for is the opportunity to earn that support. You mentioned your family history and some difficult times that your family has been through. Can you describe those for listeners who might not be familiar with them? Yeah. Um, my dad, who was a district attorney in Berkshire County uh, for 13 years, uh, passed away December 15th, uh, 2003. Um, the, the year I graduated uh, from college, I was living in D.C., um, working for, for Congressman Olver at that point, passed away suddenly from what we came to realize was a, a genetic heart disease uh, in my family. You know, my dad was the center of our world. You know, there were four of us growing up. I was the oldest in 1990. I got to go out on the campaign trail with him. Like, I, I loved it. My dad was a, a larger-than-life figure, which is saying something for someone who was five foot six. Um, but he was just, he, he was everything to us. So to, to lose him was, was earth-shattering, right? It broke us, but our community was there for us. The amount of people who showed up at our door for, you know, what felt like weeks, if not months on end, and shared stories about how my dad had impacted their lives positively, and oftentimes uh, by helping them get access to services they need instead of prosecuting them for a lapse in judgment for a mistake that they made in their life, um, that touched me, right? It, it deepened my, my empathy. Um, and then nine and a half years later, um, we lost my brother Nate um, to the same genetic heart disease, and Nate and I were, were close before my dad passed. Um, we became much closer when he passed. Nate and I shared uh, a great deal from a love for politics. We both went to Providence like my dad did uh, as well. I mean, Nate had everything. He, he had every gift but length of time on this planet, right? You know, talented, and he knew it. He was not humble, right? But just a, a talented kid who wanted to give back and wanted to make sure that you know, other kids didn't feel the pain that he felt. I mean, Nate had heart surgery when he was 14 years old. Uh, he had been put on a list for a heart transplant a month before uh, he passed away. Um, and again, that community, both both in the Berkshires, my colleagues in the Senate, uh, folks at the State House, um, and so many others, you know, held us up. And and that really, along with deepening my empathy with Nate, it fueled my sense of urgency. I, I know tomorrow is not a given. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And um, you know, if folks noticed a difference in me after Nate passed, I think more than anything else, it was that I, I grew 
Um, I grew impatient uh, with some of the excuses for our inability to address big challenges uh, because I know there is a cost to kicking the can down the road, and that cost is felt uh, in too many uh, of our friends, our family members, our neighbors' uh, lives. Thank you. Senator, is there a, uh, a Western Mass appeal that you bring to this? And we don't see that many statewide candidates come out of the Western counties. Pittsfield, that's about as far west as it gets. Um, you, you represented that era, area for a long time. I'm trying to think of, uh, with the exception of Jane Swift, when was the last time there was a, a Western Mass governor? I'm sure you know the answer. Winthrop Murray Crane in uh, 1899 to 1903. Okay, so quite a long time. So we're due. We're due. <laughs> is there um, a geographic equity argument to be made here? Like, is there something legitimate that you can say, hey, look, we have a, a slightly different perspective uh, on the other part of the state. So when you're when you're courting votes in in Eastern Massachusetts, how does Western Mass uh, play into that? So uh, I think there's a bit of a, a geographic equity um, play there, but I think more importantly, Mike, there is. Uh, a recognition and an understanding of what it is to too often be an afterthought. Um, you know, my, my mom grew up in Weymouth, um, obviously moved out to, to Pittsfield with my dad uh, when they got married. Um, and you know, the way my mom would describe it was she knew she was officially from Western Mass when she would watch the, the weather uh, person doing the weather for all of Massachusetts and stand in front of the Berkshires and never even mention what the weather was like in the Berkshires, right? You know, and all kidding aside on that, I, I do think there is a, a natural feeling of being an afterthought, of not being at the core of the debate and the discussion, and of having a unique set of challenges. And I think a strength that I then bring to the race was for my 10 years in office, I had to not only think about the issues uh, that impacted the 52 communities I represented, um, which were often unique, but think about those connections to my colleagues in the House and figure out how do you build a coalition to address a unique issue like that. And so while the, you know, while you have the immediate issue of broadband access in Western Massachusetts um, in communities that were completely unserved, when I was talking to my colleagues in the eastern part of the state, it was help us build out this infrastructure that we need that is just completely non-existent. Uh, that is critical for a 21st century economy. Help us build that out, and then let's build a, a fairer market uh, for uh, for telecom, for broadband, uh, so that it is affordable for everyone, accessible for everyone. And and we know now just how important that is, and how many people either didn't have enough devices, didn't have a good enough service, couldn't afford it, didn't think it was relevant, and then weren't able to make the transition during this time of upheaval over the last year plus. So I, I think it is knowing that our issues were sort of never central to the debate and, and being able to connect with people on like, yeah, they, they don't really get us out here. They don't get you. All right, let's all work together and find a way to connect from there. How are people right now thinking about the relationship between Massachusetts politics and national politics, more broadly speaking, especially as we look toward, I know it's still a long ways away, but it's going to come up incredibly fast, the next presidential election. I ask this question for what it's worth, you know, you guys know that I'm a, a Massachusetts transplant. I consider myself very fortunate to be living here and raising my family here at this point in time. I know my wife feels the same way. And I am also really apprehensive about the future for the country, politically speaking. I don't think that what we just went through after the last presidential election is a blip or something that's been resolved. I think it's still with us and I'm worried it's going to get worse than it was 
in the years to come. So do you find that people talk a lot about Massachusetts politics in connection with where we're headed as a country? And if so, what do they say? I think a little bit, Adam. There is clearly a, a, a palpable sense of relief. Right? Like, and that sort of, we, we all felt that release in November. Certainly that was tried in January. Um, but you know the the presence of President Biden and Vice President Harris, and the the stability that that has offered, not that it should paper over all of the challenges that we face, but I think folks rightly sort of feel that stability and say like, all right, we can take a deep breath. I do think that has then also led some people to say, okay, you know, we feel like we're in a pretty good spot when it comes to our governor. Now, what are we doing back here at home? And for some folks, that leads to them wanting to focus on you know, a municipal election, a local issue. I'll make the case that they ought to then focus on the governor and who can set the agenda in Massachusetts and what I would like to do as governor to, to build a fairer, stronger Massachusetts. Um, so I have found that there is a renewed interest in the work that we are doing here in Massachusetts and a desire to think about how do we um, address the problems that led all of us to go out and you know knock doors in Iowa or New Hampshire to, to support candidates in Georgia uh, you name it, knowing full well uh, that that alone isn't going to solve uh, the the terrifying problems that we saw manifest themselves in January and that you know, have bubbled under the surface for decades, uh, but that we've got to work on it on every single level. It's not enough to just change a, a president. It's not even enough to, to have the majorities in the House and in the Senate. We've got to be doing this work at every level of government to ensure that we're you know, making progress with the speed that we need to. Does a fairer Massachusetts mean raising taxes and spending more? Yes. On the wealthiest in our society. I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the, the frank answer. Um, just elaborate on that. What is your uh, kind of tax policy ideal here? It will come in the form of a, a policy action plan like we have rolled out uh, already. So there will be a comprehensive tax reform plan that will uh, require the wealthiest, those who have benefited from economic growth for the last 30 years, the last 40 years, but in particular have benefited uh, from growth even during a pandemic uh, to pay more uh, in uh, their state taxes. Um, we're looking at sort of all of the different tools available there. Um, and that will be the plan, assuming that the fair share amendment does not happen, because I think it's important for a candidate for governor to run on a plan that they can control and, and at least can then go out and, and advocate for. So um, yes, I, I believe that the tax code in Massachusetts places an undue burden on the middle class, uh, on the working poor and those living in poverty. Um, and it uh, does not ask nearly enough of the wealthiest in our society who have benefited immensely from income growth uh, and from economic growth uh, over the last 40 years. This kind of goes back to the legislature. And one thing that I definitely see here in the Statehouse every day uh, is that the conflict isn't really about Democrats and Republicans. It is about progressive Democrats and, and the moderate Democrats who are in charge of the institutions and in charge of these majorities. Uh, you would come in on that progressive side, presumably, uh, but knowing the game, having been a lawmaker for a long time, knowing the players, certainly knowing the Senate president very well, is that political gulf just as wide as a Democratic uh, Republican gulf is? Is it even harder because it's intra-party? and we don't get to see the conflict out in the open, would that be even more of a challenge for you to push a progressive agenda through a moderate legislature? So I don't think that anything can be harder than debating another party at the federal level who won't accept the results of a free and fair election, who doesn't accept the science of climate change. 
Um, it is certainly a different debate and a different, um, a different challenge, a different problem, a different hurdle uh, to, to addressing economic inequality, to addressing climate change uh, and racial justice. And I think you need to acknowledge that uh, because it requires multiple different avenues to, to building the coalitions um, to, to, to advance that broader agenda. Uh, that will actually be able to make the investments that we need to make in childcare, uh, in public higher education, and any number of other steps. So yeah, I think you need to be able to recognize that, right? Like this is not just going out and fighting Donald Trump or fighting the Koch brothers, uh, as important uh, as that is, right? This is a, an, a debate within the family uh, in, in that broader sense, and you need to be able to recognize that and not shy away from it. There will, there will be multiple uncomfortable debates uh, to get to the point where we can say that we are on a path to address inequality, to to solve climate change, and to address racial justice and equity. Um, and yes, I do think my experience and the scar tissue from having been in those debates in the past is useful. Um, but I also think it's just as useful that I stepped away from that, that I held to my word when I term-limited myself, and that I got the perspective from being outside of the legislature and seeing all of the potential in our communities that are sitting there, the, the dynamism in our communities, that if our state government would stop being so insular and uh, would open the doors up wide and try to tap into that energy, that we would be in a far better position for it. So it's not enough just to have been there and it's not enough to just know the problem, although you got to know it and be able to call it out. You also have to be able to see the potential that exists in our community and, and the willingness and the ability to pull that in. This is a completely shameless question on my part, but we are making our first family trip to the Berkshires in August, uh, staying in what I've been told is beautiful New Marlboro, Massachusetts. I need from you uh, and for any other Berkshire newbies who might be listening, what are the sort of top three? You got to do this if you are finally beginning to discover Western Massachusetts items that we should bear in mind when we head out there. Yeah, so a uh, great place to eat. So you'll be in the Southern Berkshires. So I'll recommend Prairie Whale in Great Barrington, uh, which is awesome. They've actually always had a little bit of an outdoor setup out front. It's right on Main Street in Great Barrington. Uh, they generally also have a ping pong table out front, which I've always Fabulous. appreciated. Uh, Mark, who runs the place, is a, a Man United fan, if I remember correctly. So I always got some good debates there. Uh, let's see, an outdoor um, attraction. There are many. I'm going to go with, with my hometown. People normally go outdoors. They won't go Pittsfield right away. Uh, Canoe Meadows in Pittsfield is one of my favorite places. It is by no means a, a strenuous hike or anything, but it's a great sort of walk through the forest and the woods there. Um, you know, We went uh, with my boys recently. They love it. Um, it, it just, you always see something new or interesting there. Uh, so I, I love canoe meadows, uh, every which way possible. Um, and then I, I always like, you got to go up to the top of Mount Greylock too. So I would put that that's less an outdoor thing. Cause unless you're going to be a real overachiever here and hike it yourself, there's a beautifully paved road to the top of Greylock. The view is incredible. Uh, that gets you up to the Northern Berkshires and you can go to one of a million different places, uh, including uh, Bright Ideas Brewing in, in Mass Mocha as you were to come down the other side uh, into North Adams, which has great barbecue across the, across the way from it there uh, at Mass Mocha. So the view from Greylock is just incredible. And it, it just like, you can see multiple states. It's just, you can't beat it. You can't beat cool. it. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Genuinely appreciate that. 
and all the you know thoughtful political yeah. talk too. But I really appreciate the vacation pointers. Ben Downing, thank you for taking the time to talk to the two of us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Stay safe and be well. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Ben Downing and Yawu Miller for joining us. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you have a minute. And please talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews with one T. The Scrum is a production of GBH News. We'll talk to you again soon.